Tonight's reading comes from Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 26. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Delmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see? And having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, good evening, Disciples Church. Good to see you. How are we doing tonight? Good. All right. Excellent. It is good to see you. Uh, good, good to have you with us uh, on a rainy evening. It's, um, it's good to be with the people of the Lord, and I'm so glad that we have the opportunity to gather together. Uh, open in your Bibles, if you're not already there, to Mark chapter 8. And again, it's obviously printed for you in the bulletin if you don't have that, um, but would love, to see, love you for you to see this um, from the Word uh, this evening. My name is Jonathan Mosher, by the way. It's my privilege to get to open up um, the Word of God with you and for you this evening. I'm excited for what we're going to look at, and it might have struck you as Phil was reading. You might have been thinking to yourself, haven't we 
Didn't we read this before? This is all sounding really familiar to me. I thought we already went over this, and you might even be thinking, if I remember that sermon, it was pretty long, so do we really need to dive into this one again? But, but uh, this is a reminiscent um, text and story to, to what we've talked about before. Even though it sounds familiar, it really is a different story. My temptation coming into this evening was to see if we could do the same songs and the same prayers and just see if anybody would notice if we repeated a sermon. But as I began to study the text more and more, I realized, oh, there's actually a lot of new things in this. I was wondering kind of, you know, I thought I had everything that I wanted to say about this theme already, um, and I have found more than enough to talk about this evening. So uh, I'm excited to dive into it with you. One of the interesting things about this text as you begin to read it is you have to start asking yourself the question, why is this text included? Of all of the motivations that the Holy Spirit working through the men of God who, who ultimately wrote these scriptures, of all the motivations that the Holy Spirit might have, what, what might we be able to glean about why this text is included when it's so similar to another text? And there's all kinds of reasons to ask that question. First of all, because some scholars would begin to ask, is this actually a separate event? Or is Mark, for some reason or another, just repeating the same story again? On the face of it, that question seems a little bit silly. Why in the world would Mark even write the story again? But I just want to point out to you, in case you've heard that or in case you've wondered that for yourselves, that uh, I want to point out to you the ways that while the story is similar to the feeding of the 5,000, it's actually very different. It's different first because of its location. If you remember the feeding of the 5,000, it happened in the Galilean region of Israel, this place that was home to primarily Jews. And here in this story, right in verse 1, we see that it says, in those days, which literally means while Jesus was still doing what he was doing in the region that he was doing it, these things occurred. And, And obviously, if you've been with us for the past several weeks, you know that Jesus has been ministering in a Gentile context. He's left the nation of Israel, the boundaries of Israel. He's walked into a Gentile region where he's ministering to those people. You'll remember maybe the most obvious difference, which is that in that first story in Mark chapter 6, we're told that there were 5,000 men plus women and children were fed. And if you were here that week, we talked about the idea that there was likely between 15 and 20,000 people that were there at the feeding of Christ, the first feeding of Christ. And And here in the second instance, we're told that there is 4,000 people. And the word that's translated people here is not the word andros, meaning man. It's a word that literally means people. So men, women, and children all gathered together. The total number is 4,000. Still a massive crowd, though obviously a lot smaller than the first instance. We're told in the first story that there were five loaves. In this story, we're told that there are seven loaves. In the first story, if you remember, we're told that the grass was green, indicating that it was most likely springtime when this happened. And here in this season, it's most likely autumn. In this story itself, we find Jesus pointing out different details. He says, do you remember the feeding of the 5,000 and how many baskets we took up? He says, we took up 12 baskets, and here in this story, there are seven baskets of leftovers that are gathered. In the first story, Jesus prays once. In the second story, Jesus prays twice. In the first story, the audience is Jews. In the second story, it's Gentiles. We could go through a laundry list of those things, but I think all of that is enough to kind of get you thinking about the fact that most likely this is not the same story. In fact, evidence would point, point us elsewhere. The very words of Christ would point us elsewhere. But here, as Jesus is ministering to this Gentile crowd, we can't help but think back to Jesus' conversation with the Syrophoenician woman. 
And if you were here for that discussion, you'll remember that what Jesus went out of his way to point out to this woman is that his primary ministry was to the Jews. That was the primary reason that he had been sent at the time and in the manner in which he had been sent was to minister to God's people, to call them to repentance, to reveal to them the gospel of the good news of his own coming, to reveal himself ultimately as the Messiah. But here in this text, we see once again the redemptive plan of Christ as he interacts with Gentiles. Different people, different settings, but similar events in a similar order. And so here's then the question again that we need to consider. Why tell these stories when the themes of these stories have already been communicated? And that is the question, if I'm honest with you, that I was asking myself as I began to prepare this sermon is how in the world do we talk about this and why, why in the world did Mark choose to relay this story again. I think the reason that these very similar stories are shared has a lot to do with the forgetfulness and the stubborn nature of our own hearts. So let me try to illustrate it this way. My father was a pastor for for many years, something like 35, 40 years, and one of the things that happens when your dad is a pastor and you grow up in the church is you kind of start to recognize the different ticks that he has in the pulpit, and you can kind of recognize, maybe even guess and predict what it is he's going to say next. And so there's a handful of stories that I remember from my youth that my dad would tell over and over and over again. And most of them were told for the specific reason that they were excellent stories, and they grabbed people's attention, and they illustrated particular truths, but one of the stories that I remember in particular my father telling was he told the anecdote of a young preacher who had moved to a new town to become the pastor at a church, and he showed up on the very first Sunday, and this is the people's first introduction to this new minister, and he gets up in the pulpit, and he preaches a sermon that just blows them away. I mean, they can't believe his oratory skill. They can't believe how how expertly he works his way through the text. They can't believe how perfect all of his illustrations are, and he hits all the beats and all the right notes and everything that that you would want from a pastor, they see in this moment. So the people leave the service that day absolutely blown away by what they had experienced. And so the second week they come back expecting yet yet again another sermon that's going to blow them away. And about three or four minutes into the sermon, all the people that were gathered realized, we've heard this before. And a couple minutes later they realized, hey, this is the same sermon this guy preached last week. So they chalked it up maybe to forgetfulness or that this man had a lot on his plate. And so they come back a third week and he does it again. And finally the fourth week, he finishes the sermon. Now four weeks in a row, he's preached the exact same text, the exact same sermon, all the same points. And finally someone came up to him and said, Pastor, we realize that you're new in town. We realize that you've got a a lot of unpacking to do. We realize that there's a lot going on. But when are you going to preach a new sermon? And his answer was, well... As soon as you all put this one into practice, we can move on to the next one. See, the truth of that silly story is that often it takes time and it takes repetition for truth to sink into our hearts. One of the reasons that we talk so often about the gospel and the specifics of what the gospel is, the nature of it, that it's the idea that God himself comes into humanity, that Jesus, in fact, is God and that he's born to a virgin and that he lives a perfect life and that he dies a death on our behalf and that he's resurrected. And we talk about all of those elements. There's not a week that goes by where, where at least a portion of that, if not the whole of it, is talked about. And the reason why is because we are a people who are quick to forget 
And it is our forgetfulness and our stubbornness and our slowness and our dullness that makes this text, I think, so incredible. Because this text is a perfect marriage of subject and medium. And what I mean is, I believe that Mark wrote this in part as a meta-narrative. Mark is highlighting in this text the dull and stubborn thinking of the disciples. You see it in Jesus' conversation with them when he says, do you still not understand these things? And he points out to them all the ways that he's been faithful and all the ways that he's taken care of them. And he has done this consistently throughout the book of Mark. But not only does he explicit, is this explicitly stated in Mark chapter 8, but lest we ourselves might list, miss the same lesson that the disciples are missing, he gives us stories that are reminiscent of the ones that we've heard before. See, we are forgetful of God's faithfulness and care for us. Sometimes we're just stubborn to see the hand of God at work. And sometimes when God is explicit in his dealings with us, when he makes it so obvious that he's at work in our lives, we still just don't get it. And so, so often we have to be taught the same lesson over and over again. And we'll see where all of these lessons for the disciples ultimately lead next week when we read Peter's declaration about Christ in verse 29. But let's notice what's happening in this interesting text, beginning in verse 1. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and they have nothing to eat. So again, a familiar narrative, this large crowd, 4,000 people in total, men, women, and children, have been following Jesus for three days. And what's interesting to note is the length of time that they're with him. These people presumably had headed out of their homes, realizing that Jesus himself was coming into town, and they wanted to go hear his message, and they're so enraptured by who he is and what he's saying and what he's able to do that they just don't return home. I mean, imagine, imagine how thrilling it must have been to be there that these people didn't even pack provisions, or to the extent that they had, they'd already run out. And this is interesting because for the first time in the book of Mark, Jesus himself states his compassion all through this book, Mark has revealed the compassionate heart of Jesus. He's referenced the heart of Jesus. But in this passage, we see it from the very words of Christ himself. He says, I have compassion on the crowd. And the Greek word that he says here is the Greek word splenitsomai, which literally means to be moved in the emotions. It literally means at a gut level, he felt himself wrenched with concern and compassion and care for all of these people that had come out to listen to him. And it's interesting to note where this word is used in the book of Mark, because if you look at it, nearly every time this word is used, either narrated through Mark or directly from the mouth of Jesus, he uses the word compassion in reference to people that would have been found offensive. Here, he's talking about the Gentiles. In Mark chapter 1, verse 41, he uses this word to de- Mark uses this word to describe Jesus' heart of compassion towards lepers. In Mark chapter 6, verse 34, you see Jesus moved with compassion towards revolutionaries, people who wanted to overthrow the government. In chapter 9, verse 22, a text that we haven't gotten to yet, the same word is used to describe Jesus' heart of compassion towards someone who is demon-possessed. And this reveals something about the saving heart of God. 
that Jesus saves those whom we would least expect to be saved. I mean, just think for a moment how this played out all through the course of Jesus' life from the very time of his birth. The declaration of the arrival of the Messiah didn't come to religious leaders gathering in the synagogue. It didn't come to the morally pious worshipers that gathered there. It didn't come to the good people that we would have expected. The news of the coming of the Messiah came to shepherds, uneducated, broken outcasts, people who weren't even capable by virtue of the job they had of going into the town to worship. When Jesus begins his ministry and decides to call disciples to himself, he he doesn't call seminarians or scholars. He calls fishermen and tax collectors. When the Pharisees, the religious elite, the rulers of the day, bring a woman who's guilty of adultery to Jesus for judgment, pointing out that her, her moral lapse made her worthy of death, Jesus didn't side with the Pharisees and cast out the woman. Rather, he called out the Pharisees and forgave the woman. We consistently see Jesus extend compassion and salvation to those whom we would least expect to receive it. To those who'd been dismissed by the religious elite. And now in dealing with a group of Gentiles, unwashed masses, people who are not a part of the covenant people of God. Jesus not only has compassion for them, but he uses miraculous means to share a meal with them. And in doing so, he breaks all the expectations of what an observant Jew would do. An observant Jew wouldn't sit down with a Gentile for a meal, someone who didn't believe in God, much less provide miraculously a meal for them. See, no one would have assumed that the reconciling message of the gospel would be extended to the Gentiles of all people. And yet here is Jesus, by his own account, moved with compassion toward them. This is so consistent with the nature and the character of our God. It's what we see in his loving pursuit of his people all through the Old Testament and certainly with the the extension of the gospel to the Gentiles in the New Testament. But still, even though it is the nature and character of God to have this sort of compassion and love, it is still unexpected with the way that we think about things. Our tendency still is to view God as one who interacts with those who have their act together. We expect God to to love those and care for those and interact with those and provide for those who are good and morally upright people. But notice what it is that creates the compassion in Jesus' heart because this is fascinating. Notice why he says he has compassion. Verse two, I have compassion on the crowd. Why? Because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. Now in English, that's not a particularly inspiring sentence, but I want to point out something to you that you'd see if you could look at it in the original language. The phrase that's translated in our Bibles, they have been with me, is the Greek word prosmenon. And what it literally means is a special commitment and adherence. These people had a special commitment and adherence to Jesus. 
They were abiding with him. Not just interacting, not just hearing his message, not just observing his miracles, but there was, there was actually a sense of devotion that had been built up in the hearts of these otherwise godless people towards Jesus Christ. The Gentile crowd in this text receives Jesus in a way that the Jewish crowd did not. I mean, do you remember how the Jewish crowd responded in Mark chapter 6? The feeding of the 5,000 just, had just happened. Everyone who is gathered, gathered there, something like fifteen to 20,000 people are amazed by what they've just experienced. They saw a man pray over a little boy's lunch and begin to break it into pieces and with that lunch somehow feed fifteen to 20,000 people. And do you remember the response that we found in John chapter 6? They wanted to make him king. They wanted to overthrow the rulers and overthrow the powers and install a new kingdom right then and there. And Jesus, in a twist that no one saw coming, starts saying to them, if anyone wants to be a follower of me, you have to eat my body and drink my blood. And the people react to that exactly the way that you would expect them to. They walk away. The people to whom the Messiah had been promised didn't recognize him when he came. But the people who were not part of the covenant promise at all to this point received Jesus in a way where the Bible describes them as abiding with him. So what's the difference between the Jews and the Gentiles? The difference wasn't that one group needed salvation and the other did not. The difference is that one group realized their need of salvation and the other did not. So hear this, the declaration of the gospel of grace is only good news to those who know that they need it. And we can talk about the gospel and we can talk about grace and we can talk about the loving, kind provision of God, but if you don't understand your own desperate need of him, it is not good news for you. And this is exactly, by the way, why we, why we take part in things like prayers of confession and assurance of pardon. If you look at the words that were in front of you when we went through that prayer of confession, it was a public demonstration, realization of a deep internal need. We recognize, God, that we don't do the things that we're called to do and that we do all sorts of things that we're not supposed to do. It's really the prayer of Paul in Romans chapter 7. And it's when you begin to understand your deep need for somebody to get involved in your life and turn things around and bring life to what, it was, what was ultimately dead that you realize your need for grace. So he continues, verse 3, And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from far away. These people have been so devoted in their listening to Jesus that they've not eaten and they're to the point of collapse. Let me just throw in one, one quick idea here. How often are we that desperate for Jesus? And I say that, by the way, not to guilt you into getting up early tomorrow morning to do your devotion so that you can check it off your list, all right? This isn't about manipulating you into some sort of other behavior. What I'm talking about here is a real desperation of the heart. How often do we actually realize that that we don't just need a little bit of Jesus, but that we're desperate for him. 
where we realize that our need for him is greater than any other thing in our life, even any other need in our life, where we're willing to put aside everything to pursue him. Now, that may play itself out differently in your life than it did in the lives of these people. It may not play out in the sense of physical exhaustion, but how easy is it to be in a position where we've starved ourselves of Jesus? where we haven't been communing with him in silence or in solitude, where we're not hearing from him through his word, where we're not talking to him in prayer. And understand that the reason ultimately that we do those things or fail to do those things is because we are finding something else more compelling, more interesting, more demanding of our time than we find Jesus. In verse 4, we see the first demonstration of the dullness of the disciples. Look what it says. And his disciples answered him, we could add foolishly, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? They're perplexed. We don't have enough food to feed 4,000 people. How in the world can we do this, even though we've seen you do this before? They've seen this play out. They know how it ends. But Jesus, if you notice, doesn't really respond to their question. Instead, he says this to them in verse 5. And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? They said seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves. And having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they sat them before the crowd. I just want to point out one quick thing here because this is so interesting, but it is a bit of a sidelight. I want you to notice the phrase, having given thanks. Because that word in Greek, now this is the third, third Greek word for today, all right? I'm sorry, I really try not to be that guy, but this is the third Greek word for today, and I think it's a helpful one for us. It's the Greek word eucharistine. And if that sounds a little bit familiar to you, the root of that word is where we get our word eucharist, the Lord's Supper. And here's the reason that that's interesting. This is, in a sense, the first image that we have of Gentiles being brought into communion. At the very least, it's a picture. Verse seven, and they had a few small fish and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them and they ate and they were satisfied and they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full and there were about 4,000 people and he sent them away. So all 4,000 people come, all 4,000 people listen, all 4,000 people are hungry and all 4,000 people eat until they are satisfied. These Gentiles who were brought into communion with Jesus Christ found satisfaction with him. Now, I don't know if all of these people trusted in Christ, and we're not told of the state of their hearts, and we certainly wouldn't be in a position to judge their intentions, but if nothing else, this text is a picture of the foreshadowing of the satisfaction that is to be found in Jesus. That Jesus truly is, in his own words, the bread of life. And that whoever comes to him will never go hungry and whoever believes in him will never be thirsty. And this led one scholar to say this, and I want you to hear this and think about it. One scholar said, this is a lesson for Christians of all the ages. Your enemies are neither forsaken by God nor beyond the compassion of Jesus. Do you remember the response of the, Gentile, or rather of, the, of the disciples when the Syrophoenician woman approached? 
They begged Jesus to send her away. They had no use for this woman. They had no use for her people. They had no use for the Gentiles. They viewed them as a vile, evil, wicked, broken, godless people. And they were. But understand what this text itself teaches us. That Jesus views these Gentiles, these ones who were unworthy of love by any metric we can imagine, and invites them into communion with himself. So here's the question that I would ask for you. And if I'm honest with you, it's a question I've been thinking about a lot this week. Who, who is your Gentile? Like who's, your, who's your enemy? Who is the individual or the group of people or... Who are those that in your mind, by nature of who they are, by nature of what they do and how they live, or by what they've done, you treat as being beyond redemption? What does it reveal? What does it reveal about our own hearts and about our faith in the ability of God to call and save people who we presume are beyond help. So when the Bible says things like pray for those who use you, do good to those who are evil to you, how does that play out in your life? Who is that person that you have no use for, that you think is just beyond the pale, unreachable, unsavable, too far gone? Who are the people towards whom you have a deep-seated anger. We thank God that he did not treat us as Gentiles with the same disregard that we often would be willing to extend to others. And he immediately got into the boat, verse 10, with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Now that language again is interesting. And when it says that they came out, what it means is that they came out almost as if they were in a military rank. It's as if they were coming around him, flanking him. They were putting forward a front. They wanted to demonstrate their power and perhaps intimidate Jesus. And as we've watched the Pharisees' exchanges with Jesus throughout this book, what we've noticed is that they have grown more and more militant. They've grown, grown more emboldened, more aggressive in their treatment of Jesus. And they come in this case, not just to test him, but actually to argue with him. They come specifically to oppose him. Verse 12, and he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. He sighed deeply in his spirit. Now two weeks in a row, we've seen Jesus have this response to particular instances in his life where his response in a particular moment is to sigh. And this isn't Jesus sighing sarcastically, I don't believe, as we might, towards a, what we consider maybe a foolish or unnecessary question. This is, this is once again Jesus expressing agony in his spirit over the human condition. Dave talked about this a bit last week, but, it, but when, the, when the deaf and, and mute man come, uh, is brought before Jesus, and, and Jesus goes in that moment to pray for this man and ultimately to heal him, we're told that Jesus sighs. That there is, in a sense, 
in, in his own heart in agony over what the sinful condition had brought upon this man. That the brokenness of this world had been experienced in this particular individual by the fact that he was deaf and mute. And now in this chapter, he groans deeply over the spiritual condition of the Pharisees. So within just a few verses of each other, we have Jesus interacting with Gentiles in a way that no Jew would have expected. And now we see Jesus interacting with Pharisees in the way that no Christian would expect. He's not dismissive towards them. He's not cruel towards them. He expresses deep sadness even over the rejection of those who had made him an enemy. I think in some way or another, this is an expression of the sentiment that we find in 2 Peter where the apostle says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you. Not wanting anyone to perish, but for everyone to come to repentance. And we could add in as a parenthesis, even his enemies. Now the question becomes for us, why didn't Jesus just grant a sign? Why didn't he do it? Imagine how powerful, how quickly the word would have spread if he could have put the religious elite, the religious institutions at his back. But notice and catch what it says about the Pharisees. They weren't hoping in this text to have their faith in Jesus affirmed. They weren't looking for one final sign to prove what they already believed in their souls about his nature and his character and his personhood. Rather, they were looking to discredit him altogether. They'd heard the reports of Jesus' miracles. Perhaps they'd even witnessed some of them. But now, what they want to question is the source of his power. And we find this in other texts. By whom do you do these things? They ask for a sign from heaven. In other words, they're not just looking for Jesus to perform another miracle. They already know that he can do those things. They want proof that it's actually, his, it is actually God that is the source of his power rather than the devil. So they ask for this sign from heaven, and Jesus denies them. And by the way, we're going to see God do exactly this, provide a sign from heaven, but he's not going to do it at the mere behest of the Pharisees who already doubted and refused to believe. Jesus is not going to be forced into proving himself to those who refuse to be convinced. Verse 13 is chilling, even in its simplicity, and he left them. And he got into the boat again, and he went to the other side. His soul sorrowful at the spiritual condition of the Pharisees, but he turns and he leaves. It's a sign of judgment. Verse 14, now they, that's the disciples, had forgotten to bring bread, which I think is funny. And they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now what's happening in this moment? These disciples had somehow, leaving a meal that had just fed 4,000 people where they had seven large baskets of bread left over, had forgotten to bring a couple extra loaves with them. And so they're all sitting in the boat. They're talking about the fact that, man, John forgot the bread. Oh, I thought Peter was getting it. And they're having this little back and forth. And Jesus, it seems, knows where this conversation is headed. He knows that it's going to lead once again to, well, where in the world are we going to get the bread? Because these are the disciples and that's what they do. 
And so he senses where they're going and he gives them a warning. He says, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And when we find leaven in the New Testament, it is most often representative of sin. It's the idea that when you put leaven into a, into a loaf of bread, it expands into the whole loaf. It's a sign, it's a symbol of sin itself. And in this case, the sin that it's pointing out is unbelief. We've just seen the Pharisees refuse to be convinced by the amazing things that they've heard and seen from Jesus. And he goes on to say, and the leaven of Herod. If you remember that, that particular reference, it was to the fact that Herod was amazed by what John the Baptist said. He, he loved listening to John the Baptist preach, but he refused to believe in his heart. And Jesus is saying, disciples, don't go down the same path. Recognize where you're, where you're losing sight, where you're getting drawn away. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, twelve. And the seven for the 4,000. How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? He's given them a spiritual warning about the fact that they are not yet recognizing who they're with. Their faith is incomplete. It's hazy. It's not quite there. He says, are your hearts hardened? Do you not perceive or are you understand? He's saying to them, are your, are your eyes unable to see? I've taken care of every need. I've provided for you at every turn. You've never done without. You've never been in need. And you still forget who is sitting in your very presence. And they came to Bethsaida and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes, something we saw Jesus do last week, and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And the man looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again and the man opened his eyes and his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. Now, this is unusual for several reasons, the first of which is, is that Jesus heals this man's sight in two distinct stages. And that's interesting because if you've been paying attention to the language of Mark, nearly every time Mark makes reference to one of Jesus' miracles, he ends it by saying, and right away, and immediately, this happened. But here in this text, we find Jesus touching the man twice. We know from past weeks that Jesus didn't even have to be physically present in order to bring healing, but here he is spitting and he is touching this man and for the first time in this book, the effect is not complete or instant. So what's, what's going on? There's all kinds of different opinions on this and if you want to get down a rabbit hole, you can start to look at different commentaries and, and look at different people's interpretations of what's happening. Some people say that it's as simple as the fact that maybe a little extra spit had gotten into the man's eyes. In fact, Jesus did in fact spit into his eyes and so they say, well, when Jesus came in, he was just wiping away a little bit of debris so that the man could see clearly. I reject that on its merits. <laughs> I just think that's a silly explanation. 
Some say that the second touch wasn't to provide healing, but that, or rather that what he was trying to do was, was completely fulfill the healing, that the first touch wasn't quite effective. And again, I don't know where an explanation like that comes from. It's so inconsistent with everything we've seen from Jesus to this point. So what's, what's happening? Well, here's, here's my take. I think Jesus is providing this healing as an analogy, as a parable of sorts. And we've seen Jesus do this throughout his ministry to the Gentiles. We saw this in his discussion with a, with a Syrophoenician woman that he, he responds to her in mid-conversation via parable, giving her a picture, a story. And I think, in a sense, the very miracle that Jesus performs here is a parable. And by the way, this is why we took such a huge chunk of scripture at once, because context is so important. This whole passage has been reminiscent of things that we've already heard and already learned and already seen in this book. And each of these stories that we've read have familiar elements and themes. We've seen another example of the feeding of multitudes. This story contains Jesus' warning to the disciples when they still don't understand after being taught and shown. This story contains another rejection of the Pharisees when they demand yet another sign of God. And here, this man doesn't, com- doesn't see completely, even after being exposed to the healing hands of Jesus, it takes a second touch. So here's here's what I think is happening. I think this healing is recorded for us within the context of Mark chapter 8 as a picture of the gradual growth and progress of the Christian life. I mean, this man starts to see the moment Jesus touches him, but everything's hazy. I can see, but I can't quite make everything out. Not everything's making sense to me. Not everything's perfectly clear yet. The lesson is clear even if we miss it. The lesson of this chapter is that God continues to be faithful and patient in providing leading and calling and sanctifying even when we are foolish and slow. And this man's healing, I believe, was yet another lesson for the disciples and ultimately a lesson for us. It was Jesus continuing to lead them along to reveal who he is. And now, in the healing of this man, he's given them a parable, a picture of their own lives in Christ. Christian, how often have you found yourself frustrated, doubting, angry, confused, worried within the context of your walk with Christ? And how often have those feelings ultimately led to deeper feelings of inadequacy or maybe even doubt about whether or not God loves us, about whether or not we know him, about whether or not we're making enough strides, about whether or not we're moving forward at a great enough clip. And I think this whole chapter is being given to us with this particular story of the healing of the blind man as an exclamation point to convince us of the fact that in the moments of misunderstanding and confusion and frustration and forgetfulness, the promises of Christ are certain and sure. I think it's what Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, where he says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It's what Paul writes again in Romans chapter 8 when he says, and those whom God predestined, he also called. 
And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. It's the idea that what Christ begins in you, Christ will be faithful to complete. That he does not leave jobs half done. That in moments where we lack clarity and where we're confused and where we're hurt and where we're doubting, God is still faithful, he is still sure, he is still present. Now we're going to piggyback on this theme next week, but what mattered for the disciples ultimately wasn't these momentary lapses because their lives are full of them. What mattered was the trajectory of their faith and belief. And that was the sign of the work that was being done within them. See, the truth of the matter is, in this life, we will never have perfect clarity. We will always be growing, always maturing, always changing, transforming, becoming more like Christ, undergoing that metamorphosis as we're sanctified in him. But it's not ultimately till we're united with Christ in glory that we'll experience it fully. And so Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12, where he says, he says, it's like right now we're seeing as through a glass dimly. We're having a reflection in a mirror, but it's hazy and we can't quite make it out. But then, in that day, when we're united with Christ, then face to face. For now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. See, the assurance of your satisfaction and the assurance of your joy in this life is that you right now are known fully, that God knows who you are, that he loves you despite everything about you that's broken because of what Jesus Christ has ultimately done on your behalf at the cross. That's the guarantee, that's the assurance, that's the beauty of it, that Christ's love for me doesn't wax and wane with how well I can perform that his love for me does not ebb and flow, that his grace is not withdrawn or given based on how well I'm doing. I am fully known. That's what 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12 says. In this life, I am fully known. But there's a sense in which my eyes are still hazy when it comes to knowing God fully. There's things about this life I don't quite understand. There's things about his word that I don't quite understand. And we should find confidence and comfort in the fact that the saints themselves experience the very same thing. Do you remember what was written about Paul? As the other apostles were reading Paul, what they were saying is he writes things that are incredibly hard to understand. But the invitation of this passage is that when you find yourself doubting, confused, frustrated, remind yourself of the goodness and the faithfulness, the patience of this Jesus Christ who promises he will never leave and never forsake. And in the moments when you forget, and you will, in the moments when you forget his goodness and when you forget his faithfulness and if you wonder if he's still there and when you wonder why your life's going the way that it is or why the world looks the way that it is, the cross stands as the guarantee of his love and patience. And we can look to the cross and be reminded of the extent to which Jesus loved us and the depths to which Jesus was willing to go on our behalf.
So be encouraged, brothers and sisters, by what we find about our Lord and about ourselves in this text. We're slow and hard, but we're being softened and brought up. And that's our comfort in this life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you that you are God who continually pursues, that you are patient, that you, that you continue to love even when we feel and are so unlovable. We thank you that you bring confidence in moments of doubt and that in the moment when we doubt the most, we have the cross to look back on as the symbol, the representation, the fact to which we can anchor our life, which is that God loved us so much that he came into this broken world and gave himself up for her. So God, give us that sense of patience as we continue to grow in you. Help us to pursue you like these Gentiles did. Help us to avoid the pitfalls of the Pharisees. Help us to work through our own stubbornness and hardness of hearts like the disciples. And we'll give you praise and honor and glory for what you do. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.